Encore with Claire O'Brien, arts and entertainment for the Midlands. Hello, 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 and you're listening to Encore on Midlands 103. Every Thursday night, we bring you the best of what's happening in the arts in Leash, Offaly, Westmeath, and sometimes, as we will tonight, a little bit further afield. Encore at midlands103.com is the email address. If you'd like to get in touch with me, I'm Claire O'Brien, and I'd love to hear from you about what is floating your boat in the world of the arts and culture, and in heritage indeed, at the moment. Uh, We're going to start tonight with a little overview of what's on the show. Um, We will be talking about Beyonce and the two new songs that she dropped, as they say, uh, earlier on this week at the Super Bowl. She has made a foray into country music. I'm really curious to hear what you'll you'll think about the two songs because I'll play them both for you a little bit later on. Um, We'll also be talking to Andrea Mara. Andrea is a crime writer and she will be at the library in Port Leash on Saturday the 24th of February. I'll be having a, a chat with her there at two o'clock about her most recent book, No One Saw a Thing. Um, but it's part of a celebration for Ireland Reads and great opportunity for you to, as they say on the, the tagline, get lost, get lost in a book and take an opportunity to find your way back into fiction or non-fiction. A lot of people really struggled, I think, during lockdown. I'm still hearing from people saying, yeah, I kind of got out of the habit during lockdown or over lockdown. I kind of stopped reading and I haven't really gotten back into it. Now's your chance. And I'll be talking to the director at Portumna Players because they are bringing to Burr on Saturday night a brand new play by Westmeath writer Jimmy Curie. It's called Marrying Mike. It sounds absolutely hilarious uh, and it's on, as I say, in Burr, in Burr Theatre on Saturday night. Um, so I'll be chatting to Pamela there about that. So that's all still to come on the show. As always, we'll give you a bit of an update about what's happening locally. If you want to fill up your cultural arts diary for the week, um, a new exhibition opening uh, tomorrow at the Lewin Gallery. Uh, really, really interesting. We'll be talking about that on the programme next week. Um, in Mullingar Arts Centre on Saturday night, the Furies will be playing. And then the following weekend, which is again the weekend of the 23rd, 24th, there's a new play coming and it is from Tommy Marin. Now, I'm looking forward to talking to Tommy on the programme in the next couple of weeks. But the play is called Matches and Old Flames. And they're always hilariously funny and always draw a huge crowd. So that is at Mullingar Arts Centre next weekend. David McSavage is at the Dean Crow Theatre tomorrow night and on Sunday they're having one of their In the Spotlight events featuring local performers, young people, singer-songwriters. Uh, it's also worth noting, if you have a leaving a fifth-year student in the house, that, actually no, sorry, a Leaving Cert student in the house, it's a different one for fifth year, that Cyclone Rep Theatre are doing their Hamlet experience in Athlone on Thursday and Friday at the Dean Crow Theatre. Now it's not a performance of Hamlet. It's a slightly different thing. Uh, really looking forward also to seeing um, Ian McKellen's new performance of Hamlet. It's actually a film but it's filmed all around the theatre. Um, we'll talk about that I think a little bit a little bit later on in the next couple of weeks in the programme but it looks spectacular. Um in Tullamore, Esker Arts Centre, the Rock of Ages are finishing up on Saturday. Now, I, you may have been one of the very lucky people who managed to scoop up a ticket for that production by Tullamore Musical Society. And on Saturday, there is a bookmaking workshop, which looks really, really interesting. 
Tonight at the Dunamis Theatre, you can catch Andy Irvine and Donald Lunny and on Saturday nights, Legends of American Country Music. Now, speaking of Dunamis, next Thursday night, I will be here in Tullamore presenting the programme. But if I could be anywhere else in the world, it would be at Dunamis because Michael Murphy is bringing the third play um, in the Man in Woman's Shoes series. It's called The Mysterious Case of Kitsy Rainey and Michael is just such a phenomenal performer and Kitsy Rainey, a, a terrific character um, and those three plays, The Man in Woman's Shoes um, and, and this one here as well, uh, The Mysterious Case of Kitsy Rainey. They, I, I, as I say, if I could be anywhere other than here next Thursday night, that is where I will be and as soon as I can catch it, I will be there. Michael is a terrific writer and uh, Super performer and it'll be hilariously funny as well and very moving. Uh, we are going to take a little break uh, before we come back to some Beyonce. And to do that, we will uh, take some music. And this is from Andy Irvine and from Donald Lunny. It's called The Blind Harper. You're listening to Encore on Midlands 103. Encore with Find Local Jobs. Find your perfect work-life balance at findlocaljobs.ie Well, that was Texas Hold'em. Now, I've heard it a couple of times and it is a real worm. It's a real earworm. It's really growing on me. Uh, Why we're playing this? Well, it was released during the Verizon commercial at the Super Bowl the other night. Um, On Tuesday then, already it had made it to the top of the Apple Country Music charts, making... Beyonce, the first black woman to top the Apple country music charts. Forbes, however, have been reporting that country music stations across America have been much, much slower to pick it up or to play it. Um, and it's it's kind of interesting. The second song they've been, has been less well received. It's called 16 Carriages. I'll play it for you a little bit later on in the programme. Um, but it just struck me how audacious it was to use that advertisement for Verizon to drop two new songs and it brought me back to this conversation that I had with Mick Lynch recently Now we were chatting you heard it last week on the programme about the Eurovision but we also delved into the Grammys and what had been happening there and we were talking particularly about musicians using their platforms and their moment on the podium uh, for reasons other than saying thanks to all of those who were involved in particular projects with them. But when we were chatting uh, about the Grammys Mick and I started our conversation with Joni Mitchell. Really interesting, the contrast here, I think. For both of us, it was the standout moment of the night. Really understated um, and worth finding on YouTube if you haven't had um, a chance to see it. But that kind of a performance and that kind of performer, in contrast with the Taylor Swifts and the Beyonce's, um, have a listen and see what you think. Yeah, that would have been my standout. And I think anyone realised they were witnessing history there watching. She won, obviously, the Grammy for Best Folk Album, which I was delighted about. And she, um, just to see her on the stage after what she's been through over the last couple of years and come back and learn to walk and learn to talk and sing again. Um, and to perform there with Brandy Carlyle, they've done both sides now, which, as we all know, is an absolute beautiful song oh, anyway. Yeah. But to see her sitting there, you know, 80, 80, 82 years of age or whatever she is. She's definitely 80. And I just thought, wonderful. And the voice still sounded good, you know. It did. It sounded, um, it sounded, 
doesn't sound like it used to. And, and you can imagine that. It, it, how of could course. it? How could it? Yeah. But the performance was electrifying. Yes. And I think she was able to capture every single person. Oh. Like you, you, you watch around, you see all the Taylor Swifts and all these people standing there looking at her all in awe realizing, hang on, you know, she paved the way for all these female artists, especially any of them in the folk, folk genre and stuff. Yeah. But she paved the way for a lot of them. And they're all looking at her and going, we all know that song. Doesn't matter what age you are, you know that song. And I'm a huge fan of her. Yeah. And I, I just thought, I tears in my eyes. I'm not lying, too, definitely. Though, yeah. You know, I just thought a very emotional performance. Yeah. And the other one that would have jumped out for me would be uh, Billy Joel. I'm okay. a huge Billy Joel fan, and yeah. the big thing for him was that was his, he stopped writing lyrics to his songs 30 years ago after the River of Dreams album. Yeah. And ironically, ironically, the last song he wrote and put on River of Dreams was called Famous Last Words. And he knew that when he was writing it, he said, I'm giving up writing. I'm still doing music, but he had no interest putting lyrics to them. Right. And very unusual for someone that's been around that long that for the last 30 years we've had no vocal, you know, um, from him. So to come back with this song, Turn the Lights Back On, he came on and performed it, and it's your typical piano man type yeah. song, one man sitting at a piano, playing an intro, playing a song, no gimmicks, no whistles and bells, and, you know, it went down a storm, and he done, obviously, You May Be Right, which is one that's been covered by Garth Brooks and other people. Yeah. People might know it by them. So, and, and both of them I know are veterans, but I'm a huge, like, Taylor Swift fan as well, and I love Olivia Rodrigo. So, oh, yeah, that you was know, a great performance. Uh, Olivia Rodrigo's oh, was a great performance. Lovely. Um, and I thought what was really interesting, um, and uh, the production was, was, was so good. When Taylor yeah. Swift made her announcement, you know, she, she won the, the album of the year. Um, yeah. And the... She was talking then about thanking the fans and said she had an announcement for the fans that which is that she has a new album and I'm just going now backstage to drop the cover. And yes. the camera, I, I don't know how the editing is done, um, but it went around the to the room to the other women who had been in that category and you could see, right. uh, I can't remember who else was there, but certainly... Um, oh, yeah, they were all in they it, were Olivia all Rodrigo, Dua Lipa, probably Caesar, yeah. And um, Miley, Miley Cyrus was, was there. Yeah. And, and they mm. all... They were trying really, really hard to smile, but it was almost as if you could get the sense from all of them together that, like, when are we going to get a break? What do we have to do? Yes. And and would you believe, last week I was kind of predicting the winners of the top four, and I, I, I did call the record of the year for Flowers and one or two others, the best producer on that. But when it came to album of the year, Midnight's from Taylor is the only album in that category that I would have listened to constantly, and I know every song on it. But but I still didn't think she was going to win it. I actually went for Olivia Rodrigo because I thought the Grammy, I know I should vote, give it to the best album, but I just thought they're looking for, you know, as you said, you've summed it up there. They want someone, a new kid on the block type thing. And to have won four is absolutely amazing. I just, I suppose I was comparing that album to Taylor's other albums and it's probably not as good as some of her others, but it's still good enough to win album of the year and I don't know if you saw Jay-Z coming on giving out about that. Just about to ask you about that. Standing up for his lady, yeah. Standing up for his lady, fair enough but I I thought he was taught now obviously Taylor hadn't won it at this stage but he was kind of having a go at you know um, that Beyonce had won these 32 Grammys 
the most of anyone ever won, but still never had one album of the year. And I was kind of thinking, well, there's a lot of people in, in even in sports and in music and in any event, someone can dominate one era of it. Like someone can win the premiership loads of times, but never win the FA Cup. So it's kind of, I just half him. I felt yeah. sorry for Beyonce because I could see she was cringing as if to say, you've said enough. But he, um, I, I thought it was unnecessary, you yeah. know. And I wonder he though. He was having a go at the academy. Yeah, yeah. I wonder though, is it difficult for her the way um, she crosses so many genres? Because certainly listening to the yeah. to the five R&B songs that were up for the R&B song of the year, I was thinking, yeah. they just all sound the same. Um, yes. You know, and there was nothing as edgy or as really as clever as what um, and as stylish and as well produced as what Beyonce can do. Does she just yeah. fall between the stools in terms of, of, of where she could be nominated for that? Or am I misunderstanding it? No, I, I think like she's still as popular as ever. And uh, when her albums come out, I do have a quick listen to them. And I suppose I jump on the hit singles and listen to them more so. But um I, I don't know, maybe, like, the other th- way I look at it, if you're the most nominated, and or the most, you've won the most Grammys, and if you haven't got album of the year, sometimes it could be down to, people only get to vote, I think people get to only, the, the 11,000 voters for the Grammys, only get to vote for 11 categories or something. Now, there's I about like 90 categories. Yeah. yeah, there's over 90, and so they can only vote for 11. Now, a lot of them will try and get their vote in for the big one, and then I think there's a second round because if everyone just votes in the first 10 categories, there's nothing else to vote for. But, yeah, there's um, you're only about, allowed to vote in 10 of them. So some of those Beyonce people could be voting for single of the year, for a song of the year, or you know, um, recorded years, best producer. So there's a lot of other categories. Obviously, the one, the highlight, everyone wants to win is album of the year. Of course it is. So that was 16 Carriages, the second song that was dropped at the Super Bowl by um, Beyonce recently. Will it, along with Texas Hold'em, when they appear on her new album, which is out at the end of March, it's called Renaissance Act 2, will that make the ticket to the Grammys next year? Will it win Album of the Year? Well, we'll have to wait and find out. In the meantime, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, it is to a new Jimmy Keary play that is coming to Burr this weekend. You're listening to Encore on Midlands 103. Encore, in association with Find Local Jobs. Need to give your career some tender love and care? Make the next move at findlocaljobs.ie. And you're very welcome back to Encore. Still to come on the programme, I'll be chatting to crime writer Andrea Mara uh, about her most recent book. It's called No One Saw a Thing. Well, if you're in Burr this weekend, you'll have an opportunity to see something, something brand new. And that is a play uh, written by the Westmead's own Jimmy Keary and performed by Portumna Players. It's called Marrying Mike. And I spoke recently to director Pamela Sellers from Portumna Players to find out, first of all, how they got hold of a brand new Jimmy Keary play. Well, what happened was I actually was contacting Jimmy to get another script of his called Finding Keepers um, at the start of September. Um, and I just texted him to say, look, would you be able to send on the script to me for Find the Keepers? And he did. Now, he emailed it on to me. He also asked, he also mentioned on the email that um, he'd written two further plays. Um, now, he didn't attach those to the email, but of course, me being me, I took the opportunity to go back straight away to ask him, um, could he send on the other two to me? 
And one of those was Mary and Mike. So I read the other two, but when I read Mary and Mike, I think I was two or three pages into it and I was laughing at it. So I said, this would be the play for us, for Potomac players to put on for the, for the winter production. So that's how it came about, really. And they must, they must um, have been delighted. They must have been delighted in the players to, to hear that they were getting the opportunity to, to perform a brand new play uh, and certainly one that had you giggling from the opening pages. Yeah, um, when we when I told the rest of the members that we were that I'd been in contact with Jimmy and we were going to be putting on his new play, Mary and Mike, and they were all delighted. They were actually um, they were very excited because they had put on a premiere before of one of Jimmy's plays. Um, I think it was the two loves of Gabriel Foley, which was on a few years ago in Potomac. So they were absolutely delighted that we got the opportunity to put on a, to put on another one of his um, plays as a premiere. So. Um, yeah, it was uh, very well received. Everybody was very excited about it. So tell me about the play itself. What's the storyline? Who are the main characters? And God love them, tell us about Mike. <laughs> so the play centres around bachelor farmer Mike Fogarty. Um, so he has land and he's money, despite appearances to the contrary. And he suddenly announces that he's looking to a friend, or, sorry, for a, for a wife to his so-called friend Bernie. Um, now, Barney, who is a bit of a schemer, decides that his sister, Colette, a woman with a reputation, would be the perfect wife for Mike. Um, uh, Ed, um, Kate, Mike's friend in the situation, um, and two other characters, Colm and Damien. Um, and there's a bit of a love triangle that goes on okay. around the farmhouse. Um, and then you, have the, then you have the religious, the religious neighbour, Madge. <laughs> she's not having part, it. But no, but she's a very she's quite a small part, but a very important part in the in the grand scheme of things. Okay. Um. So yeah. So, um. Yeah. The story centres around Mike trying to find a wife and how to how it all comes about. So that's pretty much it. I can't give too much away now. No, of course not. Or... <laughs> of course not. Um. It sounds like everybody has an agenda. Everybody around him. Yes. Does he have any really proper, decent, good friend at all? Or would that be spoiling the story? Uh, it wouldn't. I suppose Kate O'Sullivan would be um, a true friend of his. Um, okay. that'd be, she'd be in his corner the whole time. Okay. Um, yeah. So she'd be, she'd be his, his, his main support in it. Yeah. And you were laughing at the script from the first couple of pages. What was so entertaining about it? What had you so convinced that, yeah, this is the one that Portumna players are going to do this year? I, I just saw from the, from the first couple of pages that I read that um, I think that the audience would have enjoyed it. We would enjoy doing it. Um, I actually, just some of the characters, you could actually nearly relate to people in the locality. You could say, oh, yeah, well, Mike would be such a such a person. You know, everybody would know a Mike, everybody would know a Bernie, everybody would yeah. know a Colm, a Kate, and yeah. so on, and Madge and the whole lot. You could just see that it was written with a a kind of a I suppose a, a local locality sense of mind yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. That it could be it could be written about any town or any village in Ireland and everybody would know the characters in it. And your Mike eventually ended up being an awfully man, Tony Carroll from Kennedy. <laughs> With a great yes. acting heritage behind him, yes, yeah. Tony, in fairness to him, um, he's been a member, was a member of the Birthday Guild for over twenty years. Um, he he is now living in Portumna, um, and we approached him to read for for the play. 
um, and he came down the first night and handed him the script. Um, he read, uh, asked him to read in, got into the character of Mike straight away. So there was no question of who Mike was going to be, it was going to be Tony. He just got into the character, that was it, full stop, and never, has never got back out of the character, if you ask me. <laughs> Kill me now for saying that. <laughs> Um, can I no. ask you about that? You know, when you, when when you have the opportunity then to be the group that does the first performance of this, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, we know that Jimmy has told us before in the programme, he tries to get to see performances and sometimes even rehearsals of his plays. Did he come along to to see any of the, the rehearsals or indeed the performance itself? He did. He came along on the opening night um, and we got him to speak afterwards and uh, he spoke about the audience, how, they, how it was well received by them. Um, and obviously, congratulations to Cass and, and so on. Um, and he liked it so much, he came back a second night. Go so away. We, we had a run, yes, we had a run of four nights and he came back, he came back for the second, uh, he came back on the, on the Sunday night um, and because he enjoyed it so much. And he was texting he was texting me every night after each performance, asked me how, you know, the nights that he wasn't there, how it, how it went down, how the audience received it. And in fairness to the audience, every single night we couldn't have asked for better. Um, they laughed when they were supposed to laugh. They, <laughs> you know, they were clapped when they were supposed to clap. They were, in fairness to the four nights of the audiences that we had, they were absolutely brilliant audiences. And for us as cast and crew, listen to the laughter and I suppose the applause, it makes, it makes, the work very worthwhile for us. Um, so I suppose to give a big thank you to Jimmy for writing the play in the first place and allowing us to put it on as well as the premiere. Um, yeah. So that's fantastic. That's terrific that he that he came and that he enjoyed it uh, and came back a second time. Uh, yeah. So what can the audience in Burr expect if they toddle along to the Burr Theatre and Arts Centre on uh, Saturday night, I think it is, to, to catch this, what can they expect? Yeah, it's on um, the seventeenth uh, in the in the birth theatre. Um, it is going to be a night of laughter. Um, it's going to be a, a night of surprise as well. There's a few surprises thrown in it. Um, it'll certainly keep them entertained. Um, and great night out at the theatre. Yes, it is. I should say that we're all the cast and crew. We're really looking forward to bringing it to birth. Um, we're excited to bring it to Burr and hopefully that everybody will have a great night and enjoy it as much as we've enjoyed putting it on further. And there you go. That is Pamela Sellers of Portumna Players on Marrying Mike, the new play by Jimmy Keary, which you can see at Burr Theatre this weekend. All the details on the Burr Theatre website. After the break, I'll be talking to crime writer Andrea Mara. Stay with us on Encore. Encore. Thanks to Find Local Jobs. Take training seriously. Find great courses in your area now at findlocaljobs.ie. And you're very welcome back to Encore. Crime writer Andrea Mara has just published what I think is her eighth novel. It came out in May. It's called No One Saw a Thing. Uh, I was chatting to her very recently ahead of an event that is happening in the library in Portleach on the 24th of February to mark Ireland Reads Day. Uh, I'll be chatting to Andrea at two o'clock there at the library, but I caught up with her during the week uh, to check in with her about the book. Um, and I suppose what is for a thriller, an absolutely terrifying premise. 
Well, it comes from real life, although it wasn't quite as dramatic. Um, it was when I was in London on holidays with my family when I was about 12. And like, you know, it was our first time in London. So we were very um, clueless about what we were doing. And myself and my younger sister, who was six at the time, we jumped on a tube and the door slid shut. And the tube took off before my parents and our other two sisters could get on. So there was a passenger beside us who said, I don't know if you heard, but your dad was shouting Tower Bridge through the door. So that person told us when we got to Tower Bridge and put us off the train. And then my parents and my other sisters caught up with us. I don't know how long after. I'd say not long because I'm not traumatized. <laughs> but I don't, even, I don't even remember a whole lot about the actual incident. It's more the retelling of the story over the years. And we got my dad to remind us of the story just a, a couple of years back and he told the whole thing again and I was like dad why did you send us to Tower Bridge were you in that much of a rush to get on with your day tripping <laughs> that you wouldn't have just said next stop um, but yeah all all ended very quickly and quietly and happily for us um, so I had to make it a little bit more dramatic for the book. Yeah, I was just about to say it obviously sowed a seed of something terrifying in your own mind when it came to your own writing. Yeah, like I think more so as a parent now myself, when my dad retold the story a few years back, I thought, oh, my God, I'd always thought about it only from my perspective, as, you know, children do We kind of only think about ourselves. And I had never really stopped to think about how it must have been for my parents. It was like the late 80s, no mobile phones, and we didn't know London at all. And, you know, in a city of eight million people and that warren of tunnels in the underground, I'd say it was absolutely terrifying for them. So it made me think then, how would I feel if I was in London with my kids and that happened? And that's what gave me the idea for the book then to take sort of an everyday thing that could easily happen and has happened to lots of people because lots of people messaged me after reading the book and said, oh, my God, something like that happened to me. Or even, you know, a simple thing like people message me saying a toddler getting on a lift in a hotel and the door is closed. And it doesn't sound all that scary, but if you've got a two year old and you've got maybe a 15 story hotel and you don't know which floor they're going to get out on, that's even terrifying. So, yeah, it's that idea of a relatable everyday problem where something goes badly wrong. And it's not just that the initial event happens, it's that all of the other events that happen afterwards add to the terror and to the tension. Yeah, so like um, it's this is all in the blurb and the first chapter, so it's not a spoiler to say that when Five, the main character, gets to the next stop, she's been told everything is okay, come to the next stop, your kids are here, everything is fine. And when she gets there, she sees her two-year-old, Bia, and she picks her up and she hugs her and she's kind of wondering gosh, I wonder, will will the staff be okay that I just take her? Is the hug enough? Will they trust that I am her mom? And then she thinks, oh, Faye will, will tell them Faye is her six-year-old. And she looks around and she says to staff, Where, where's Faye? And they say, who's Faye? And that's when her world completely falls apart because the other daughter wasn't on the train when the train stopped. And uh, yeah, it goes on from there for the rest of that long day in London. Five and her husband, Aaron, are searching everywhere for their daughter, Faye, but also unraveling what might have happened. Is it, was it something accidental, something opportunistic, or was it something planned? Has someone done this deliberately? And if so, why? And as a mum and as a writer, 
uh, taking a story like that to its denouement um, can't be an easy thing. And the people say you should always write what you know. Uh, but you're writing kind of things that you don't want to know. Yeah, but that's the beauty of it. Like, it's cathartic. Like, it really is. Like, I'm a, I'm someone who literally every day I think, oh, my God, but what if about things? And, you know, what if, like, I dropped my keys in the lift in Little today? And I thought, oh, what if they had fallen down the crack and I couldn't go home? And then my son was at home on his own because he arrived home, you know, whatever. And so the writing of it in a book is a way to get it out of my system. So I actually really enjoy doing that. I don't find that difficult to live out my worst nightmare in a book because it's definitely easier to live it out in the book than it is to live it out in real life. And I think that's why we read thrillers as well. It's because you get to live out your worst fears, but in fiction, and there's usually almost always uh, a satisfying and half-reverse tempt fate or realism where if you're reading it in a book or writing it for a book, it's not going to happen in real life. We hope. <laughs> this, I think, is your eighth novel after a huge leap of faith from a very different kind of world that you were working in. Uh, tell us about that yeah. journey briefly. Um, yeah, so I was working in financial services very, very happily. I loved my job. I was there for 17 years and it was for a French bank in Ireland and they decided they were going to relocate the business we were looking after to Luxembourg and to India and to close the Dublin office. So I was absolutely devastated. I felt like the rug had been well and truly pulled from underneath me and I was horrified that I'd have to, you know, leave my lovely, lovely job and all the really lovely people I worked with. But it was the nudge that I needed. And I had I had been blogging for a while at that stage, but semi-anonymously, like I was blogging about work and juggling kids and family and childcare and all the rest of it. And it was a chance then to give it a go, to move into writing as a job. So if I hadn't been made redundant, I would probably still be happily working away on my spreadsheets and my emails every day in financial services and not remotely trying to write a book. But um, what seemed like very bad news at the time turned out to be really life-changing in a really, really positive way. And the the, the publication journey, um, you've written, is it six books now with Transworld? Uh, this is my sixth book altogether. Yeah, yeah, three were with Poolbeg and these three were, with, the next three were with Transworld and okay. I have more coming with Transworld now in, in the coming years. Yeah. So what's it like now to have left that, that world of being in financial services and to be in the world of writers and crime writers particularly because we all know that they have a they have a really tight circle a great, uh, a great group of people to be connected with the Jane Casey's and the Liz Nugent's and the, um, the Patricia Gibney's and the Andrea Carter's of the, of the world form a really tight knit circle of writers Yeah we're really lucky like there's a, a big group of Irish crime writers a lot of women crime writers in Ireland at the moment and like we all get on really really well which is like sometimes people don't believe that because (laughs) they assume everybody is in competition with each other and of course like if your book comes out the same day as someone else and if you both were hoping to get to the number one spot in the charts and there's only one number one that week but you know those situations are very very rare and for the most part um, it's a friendly competition 
competition, friendly rivalry. But what's much more important is the like camaraderie and the connectivity because you were, we're all working from home in our own bedrooms and home offices and we don't have colleagues to talk to. We have nobody to talk to. We're just on a laptop all day, every day. So when we get a chance to go to a book launch or a festival, it's an amazing chance to catch up in real life. And it's just kind of nonstop talk, 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 talk with everybody, you know, passing the latest industry gossip over and back and who did what and who signed with which publisher and so on. And it's absolutely brilliant. And I'm, I absolutely love it so far. I mean, I liked my job in financial services, but I love this life in publishing. Like it's an exciting life. Like it's just, you never know when you're going to get an amazing email. Like today's, um, today's paperback publication day for no one saw a thing. So you caught me on a good day. And, um, it has just been announced as a Richard and Judy book club pick. So I'm really excited about that. And like, that's just an email that I got telling me this really, really good news. Whereas in my old job, much as I enjoyed the job, no one ever emailed me to tell me I was a Richard and Judy book club pick. Well, there is that. (laughs) Um, We are speaking today ahead of a conversation that you and I will have next weekend. That is the 24th of February in the library in Portleash at two o'clock to mark Ireland Reads, uh, Mm -hmm. the Ireland Reads Festival. Can I ask you just before we finish up, what are you reading or what do you read in general? Um, so I read a lot of advanced copies of books that are coming out that are sent to me by different um, writers and publishers. And they are, it's all it's like a nonstop stream of books, which is brilliant. I read a lot of crime then because of that, because it's crime writers sending me books. So I love an opportunity every now and then to grab something different, like um, an Emily Henry book or Sophie White's book, just something that's not crime for a change. And the book I'm reading right now is All of Us Are Broken by Fiona Cummins, which isn't an advanced proof. It's one that's out already and people can buy it. And it is so beautifully written. It's, um, It's a kind of a Bonnie and Clyde style thriller. It's dark and terrifying, but the writing is absolutely beautiful. And if one can say uh, it's possible to enjoy a terrifying Bonnie and Clyde style story. I am really, really enjoying this. And there is your recommendation. That book that that uh, Andrea mentioned is called All of Us Are Broken by Fiona Cummins and her own book, the one that we'll be chatting about in the library in Portleash, the most recent one that came out in May and is now Richard and, Booty, uh, Richard and Judy even. Book Club Choice is called No One Saw a Thing. That is it from Encore for this evening. Uh, Thank you for the pleasure of your company and thanks indeed to all of our guests here on the show. We are staying with writing next week because I'll be talking to Cathy Kelly about her new book. We'll also be looking at a new exhibition that will have launched between now and then at the the Lewin Gallery in Athlone. So that's all to come next week on the programme. The great Joe Cooney, I do believe, is in the building and ready to bring you the best of Irish and American country music. I'll be back in the seat again next week. Until then, take care of yourself. Good night. Good night.